The Quest community, welcome to this special series that we're doing with the leaders of the RIA aggregator and integrators. So these are the firms in the registered investment advisory industry that are doing what is now 91% of the deals, which are mainly these, uh, these private equity funded, larger RIAs that are looking to buy up and are buying up and doing many, many deals in the space. Uh, other RIA firms, whether they're independent or sometimes from IBD platforms or even you know doing some deals with wirehouse advisors. So we are fortunate enough to have some of the, the leading firms in the industry doing these deals. And we have them on in this special series so that people People who are interested in right advising the industry who are potentially interested in selling their firms can understand the different models out there. Because one of the benefits of the evolution and the maturation of the RA space has been that there are more aggregators and integrators, there's more funding for these, there's more private equity. But as that happens, there also is more confusion as to all these different options out there. What are the different models? Why is one better than the other? Or what is the best fit for me? So the purpose of this series is to give the opportunity for each of these amazing firms to talk about their different models, talk about who they're looking to target, who they attract, you know, and 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 have you be in a better position as a potential seller to understand your options. And for those of you who are not in the RA space, it's also a fascinating, you know, I would listen anyway. It's a fascinating look at how the industry is involved and how an industry matures. And frankly, what the different acquisition models are that could be applied even in other industries. So check out all the videos in this special series on the RIA aggregator and integrators. Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out of the box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. As CEO and president of Mariner Wealth Advisors, Monty Becknell drives the strategic direction of the firm. As a recognized leader in wealth management, he devises innovative solutions to help meet the needs of, our, of their clients. He has an extensive personal and professional experience with closely held family businesses and their unique complexities. He often mentors other successful entrepreneurs. Marty, along with seven others, founded Mariner Wealth Advisors in 2006 with the goal of keeping the client at the center of all they do. He wanted to build a firm that could simplify their clients' lives by having the resources they needed under one roof. The day the door opened, Marty made the promise to put client's interest before anything else, a promise he holds near and dear to this day. Marty, welcome to the DealQuest podcast. Corey, thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. So Marty, I'm so excited to talk to you. I mean, I've followed the evolution of Mariner for, you know, I mean, pretty much this whole time in, in the industry. We've known each other for a long time and you did so many great things even before you got into the M&A, you know, side of things to grow Mariner. And I want to talk about all that before, but before we get there, I want to take you back to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe eight, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is the the CEO of a wealth management firm wasn't it back then, but you tell me. If no, no, it wasn't. It wasn't. I didn't even know what an RIA was. 
<laughs> right. Uh, I, you know, it, it's interesting. You said in the bio that, you know, experience with closely held businesses. My my father was a serial entrepreneur. He started at least eight companies from scratch. One of them was the largest pizza hub franchise in the world. And so, you know, as a kid watching him, I mean, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. I wanted to, you know, start companies from scratch and, and build them. And so, you know, I, I didn't know exactly what that was going to be or where that was going to take me, but that's what I wanted to do. I was just watching my father. I love that. I love that. You know, it's so funny how we all get to entrepreneurship because I had just the opposite. Like nobody in my family was an entrepreneur and and I had no models, but, but I sort of looked at the jobs my father had and he was, became successful over time, whatever. And I was sort of like, I don't think I want to do that. I want something else. So it's like the, it was the opposite for me as far as, far as, as opposed to following yeah. the footsteps. One other question, looking back, what was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were younger, early in your career, any kind of thing that's a deal that comes to mind. Of course, that's a, that's a great question and an interesting one. So, I mean, I've been asked a lot in panels, things like that about, you know, the first RIA acquisition we've done and things like that. But you know, going even farther back, the, the first the first deal I ever did in my twenties, I bought a liquor store in a in a small town in Southeast Kansas. Okay. And you know, just thinking back, you know, somebody in their twenties owning a liquor store is probably not the best advice in the world. But it was it was an interesting experience for me. You know, didn't make any money at it, but it was a great learning experience. Wow! I, so I mean, I'll ask one follow up on that before we get really on topic, but. Yeah, I mean, what had you as 20-something years old, like, buy, buy a liquor store? And how did you even, I mean, listen, I guess, I guess you, you know, your dad was an entrepreneur, so you had that model, but, and, like, the, the, the local liquor authority approved you at 20-something? Weren't there some approvals yeah. required? <laughs> yeah, no, I definitely got approved. The, the, I mean, the interesting thing, you know, you mentioned, it, but, you know, my dad being an entrepreneur, I knew I wanted to, to, you know, try something like that. And I knew the people that were selling it and uh-huh. decided that there was, it was an opportunity for, for, you know, me to, to, to say now is an opportunity to get my feet wet in, in owning something. You know, I didn't really know what I was thinking sitting here today, you know, all this time later. But again, it was, it was a great learning experience. Love that. Love that. All right. So listen, let, let's hop into it. Let's talk about Marina. You know, it's interesting. We've had a variety and we'll have a couple more folks on this series and the models are different, the, even how they came to be in the industry or thought the firm was different. And you have some these days that are, you know, started as, as aggregators, right? They, they, I mean, that's the model that they, they're starting. You, on the other hand, back, what are we, I'm doing math now. What was it? 16, 17 years ago? 16. Yeah. yeah. 16. Yeah. Started a firm that was, that was an RA firm, right? A wealth management firm. And you grew, I mean, I watched your growth for many, many years through more organic means and onboarding of advisors and not really doing deals. And then, you know, we'll get to when you made the switch, but talk to us about those early days and that mentality and, you know, and thinking and when you started up and how you grew even before you started doing a lot of acquisitions. Yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, the company was founded in, in May of 06 and you know, I spent the first 16 years of my career at A.G. Edwards. So I was kind of on the other side of the fence, so to speak, in, 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 in a wirehouse. And, you know, that, that's the only thing I knew. I went to, I, I went to work there um, literally the day after I graduated college. And, you know, I didn't know what an RIA was. Right. And, you know, the, those individuals who might be listening that were, were at A.G. Edwards know this. It's like, it was an incredible firm with an incredible culture that went through changes and, and those changes, you know, impacted a, a lot of advisors. And so I started trying to figure out what my next was and, you know, 
was fortunate enough to, to bump into two individuals at Fidelity and I didn't know what an RA was. Right. And so once, once I learned, you know, the, the fiduciary model, I knew it was the right thing for our clients and, and the rest of the team. And so I just jumped in. Wow. Love it. And then, so for a while, I mean, like, like I said, you had significant growth before you started really an M&A program. Let's, let's talk a little bit about how you did that before we jump into what's more the meat of, of what we're talking about here. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, we started the firm with a very simple philosophy that, that exists today. Client right. first, associate second, shareholder last. And, you know, really thinking about, you know, the, the progression of that. And, you know, we wanted to, you know, to do what was right for the client, to drive client outcomes and, and entering the fiduciary world, the RAA space and understanding the things that we could do for our clients. That was different than being on, on you know, the, the warehouse side of the world. You know, we started an in-house tax practice almost day one. Yep. Um, you know, start, started doing different things. You know, we own our own insurance general agency. We did that really early on. Just diff- different things that we could bring to the table that, that, you know, allowed us to do, you know, bigger and greater things for our clients. And, you know, as we get into it later, I'll, I'll kind of paint a picture of what all that looks like today. But back then, it was really, you know, getting one subject matter expert at a time on, on, on something that, that, you know, I knew the clients needed, but didn't know how to deliver myself. Yeah. Yeah. And so in an industry where the studies show, certainly over the last number of years, that organic growth is actually a lot lower. Uh, you know, people, we had a 10 year, 12 year run where the market was great. Right. And, and as somebody uh, on a panel, I saw once said, you know, that a, a bull market makes everybody look, look brilliant. Right. But if you look at true organic growth, the average firm below the big, you know, the, the big aggregators was growing at under 3%, a lot of the stats show, but you had significant organic growth during that period of time before you moved uh, more into the deal driven side. Right. And do you think it was, what else was it beyond the expanding of the services that you were able to offer clients? Yeah, so our, our organic growth, you know, philosophy and, 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 you know, process today is, is really a little bit different and, you know, happy to discuss that when we get there. But back yeah. then, you know, even as I was coming out of AG Edwards, you know, I discovered, you know, the concept of, of separating business development from advice. And so if you think about, you know, the, the wirehouse world, you could have, you know, Corner Athos guy could be the best business development professional there is. Maybe not, maybe not the best advice giver. And then you'd look at, at some center offices or even some cubicles and see somebody that was really, really strong technically, but they weren't that proficient at convincing clients to, to, to come in. And so by really focusing on trend, you know, separating that and using people's unique abilities, you know, we, 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 we had people that's all day, all they focused on was how we bring in the next client. And that's really what propelled us back then. Love it. And, you know, I want to move to more of the present, but the reason I like to set that history is because for some folks, you know, and I, I mean, I anecdotally know in the industry about you guys is there are certainly advisors that are drawn to places where they did come up through the, as an RAA, through the, had the, had to deal with those organic growth and the decisions on expansion of services and all those kind of things, as opposed to starting off as a, as let's say a PE funded data, right? So, you know, I wanted people to get a sense of that, but let's bring it more up to date now. Or actually what I'd like to do is talk about, so, 
So you had a lot of success in this organic growth and the expansion of the services and everything you did that you talked about now. Um, but then there became a point where you decided, hey, I'm also going to go. Obviously, you continue to do that. You improved it. We're going to talk about ways you did that. But I, I also want to go grow through deals, right? And that's a whole different ballgame. It's a very different model. I'm always interested in the mindset and those decisions before we get in. I don't want to talk about the model. What had you make that decision? Because, you know, I mean, you were doing very fine. You're right. You could have continued doing what you were doing. So what had you say, hey, let's also bring in this deal-driven growth element to it? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the very first acquisition we did was towards the end of, of 2011. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was an opportunistic acquisition that, you know, quite frankly, didn't work out. Um, it was financially a great deal for us, but culturally we, we swung and missed. And, you know, we, we ended up, you know, asking the three largest revenue producers, you know, to leave our organization wow. and let them pick their clients. So we, yep. we, we paid for them and then gave them away. Right. And, you know, the, the, I say this, you know, often when, when I'm talking about deals, I mean, I'm so fortunate that that was our first deal. Mm. Um, cause you know, that made me take a step back and, and, you know, do what we, what we call our non-negotiables and, and of doing a deal. And, you know, that has, that really hasn't changed for us. You know, as you know, I mean, the economics side of this, I mean, are what they are. These aren't complicated business models and, you know, the market dictates value. So spending so much time, effort, energy on that side before you do the cultural aspect and the evaluation of talent and all of those things is backwards to me. And so really focusing on the individuals inside the business and the, the depth of the talent is where we spend our time. Great. So that, that's the biggest lesson from that first deal. So how long did it take you? I mean, the, you know, you were licking your wounds for a while or whatever, or did, like how long did it take you to put your toe back into the pool, so to speak, and apply that learning to additional deals? We did four acquisitions in 2012. Great. Yeah. So you started doing a decent number of deals comparatively early, you know, in this, in this space. And at that point, were you self-funding or had you raised capital? No, we, we were self-funding. We, we self-funded everything till June of 2021. And we brought in our first private equity partner. Okay. So let's talk about before the private equity partner in that, I guess it's nine year, you know, eight, nine year period. How did you come up with the model and what is the model, right? And I don't know if maybe it's evolved and, and how did you come up with that and how did it align with your approach and philosophy? There are so many different models out there. Yeah, so our, our model has definitely evolved. So from 2012 through the end of 2018, we had a holding company approach. So we had, you know, 20-ish firms that we owned on average 70% of. Yep. They were, they, they, they kept the brand, kept separate ADV, you know, all of those things. And, you know, that was, you know, that, that was a way for us to get started in, in the acquisition game. Yep. But we, we, we realized that we weren't getting really any synergy mm -hmm. and it was just, you know, we were sharing 70% of the profits in the firm. And so in, at the end of 2018, we started a project we referred to as one Mariner, where we bought out the minority owners of north of 20 firms, transitioned to one brand, one ADV and you know, and, and, and went from there. So all the acquisitions we've done from 2019 forward have all been full buyouts. 
So it's interesting because one of the things I've been talking to the others on this podcast is this somewhat artificial but but useful distinction between aggregator and integrator, right? Uh, if you want to pick some language and if you just say, and, and everybody's probably somewhere along the spectrum, but the, the concept like you were much more of an aggregator up till 18 and then became much more of an integrator. So it's really fascinating because you certainly had folks at other firms make that pitch for the more aggregator, the more integrated model, you know, the more aggregated models, well, you know, people have their, maintain their independence, they can keep their brand, they, well, et cetera, et cetera. Integrate a model, you know, create more enterprise value, one culture, bring it all in, all, all these other things. So you made you made that switch. So I'd love to delve into that a little more for you on what you learned on the more aggregator side, why you made the, the switch. And now, obviously, you have a more integrator model. That's what you're looking to bring people into. So talk to us more about that journey of moving from more of the aggregator side to the integrator side. Yeah, I think from the aggregator perspective, you know, the way I think about it and and there's definitely a place for the aggregator model. But it, it, in my view, it's a provider of capital. And there can be other components to it that help lift, you know, each of the individual firms. But at, at, the, at the end of the day, you know, that collection of firms, each individual one of them is still making decisions for their fiefdom and not, and not making decisions for the greater organization. And, you know, that component by itself is really what drove me to make the change. Got it. So, okay. So one of the things that I've learned in my 35 years of doing this is that, and I preached to actually my clients who are buyers at whatever rung, is that one of the benefits of building a clear model, right? And having a clear positioning in the industry is not only that you draw the people who are attracted to that model, but also you actually repel the people who are not, right? right. So, so and, and you don't waste time, right? So somebody now who really is set on having more control, keeping their own brand, having their own ADV, right? It's clear they're not a right fit for the uh, current model or since 2018 model of, of Marinette and you don't waste time with them. But there are a lot of folks who are sort of trying to figure out that decision. Like some people have the the clear view on one or the other, but some are just trying to figure, figure it out. And, and they do have concerns, maybe they're open to a more integrated model, but they have concerns about losing control, losing branding, uh, maybe they have, you know, G2, who maybe the, the senior folks are more open to it, but the G2 has an idea that they can continue to build their brand, you know, they're more runway. So how do you address, I mean, you're not, you're not going to spend time with the people who are cl clearly have made that decision, but people are sort of on the fence trying to figure out how do you sort of address those concerns that come, especially when you're buying an independent RA firm where the person's been an entrepreneur, right? And they've been the king or queen or king of queens. And and, you know, that's always a concern when they, when, you know, that level of control and, and identity that they, you know, may have to give up. Yeah. And you, you can imagine, you know, I, I do have this conversation a lot and, you know, this, this, I apologize if this answer gets lengthy, but I mean, there, there's some key components to it. Sure. And, you know, we start from the perspective and, and you alluded to this, but I mean, this is an extremely fragmented space and, you know, the, the typical RIA owner um, started the business because they wanted to serve clients and they're good at it. So they grow. And then they wake up one day and they're dealing with compliance, technology, HR, you know, all the stuff, all the noise, yep. and it takes them away from the client. So we, you know, we stand back and have the conversation of, you know, what do you want to do? What's your unique ability? Where do you want to spend your time? Yep. And, you know, when and if they say, I want to spend my time with clients, you know, we take them through, you know, what, what we used to call our advisor-centric model, 
And now we call it our advisor attraction model. And, you know, it has three components. And, you know, the first component of it is we surround them with tools and resources that elevate their value proposition by experience. Yep. So in-house tax, we own our own trust company, ge- insurance general agency, have a boutique investment bank for clients who are closely held business owners. We have a dedicated retirement team, practice management team, 50 people on our investment team. You know, all these people that are just serving the advisor to serve the client. Yeah. The, the, the second leg of the stool is, is, I believe, in feeding our advisors. So, you know, 16 years, we've never not grown organically north of 15%. Wow. And we want our advisors to be strong point of sale, to be able to explain the value prop in the client experience. But the most difficult part of business development is filling the funnel. So we, we believe the filling of the funnel is an enterprise priority, and we work to filling the funnel for them. And the last part I've already alluded to is we just call it removing the noise. So taking all that back office stuff. And, you know, this, this kind of goes to your point of, you, you know, the, the founders or the teams losing their identity and losing, you know, the, they're running the show. We, we refer to it as, as front stage, backstage. So you think about being on stage. There's in front of the curtain and behind the curtain. We want to take everything behind the curtain so they get, they get to spend all their time in front of the curtain, which touches the client. And we diligence their value prop and their client experience. And assuming we want our brand on it, we don't mess with it. We take those tools and resources that I mentioned and surround them with it to fill in the gaps but they get to pick and choose if they're going to bring in the tax services, if they're going to bring in the trust company. That stuff's not mandated. Got it. I love it. Yeah, I mean, because obviously that's uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to show this broad range is because they're a different fit for different people. And, you know, but like, like I said, yeah, like you said, I'm, I'm sure you deal with that question and that concern a lot. Right. Uh, all right. So let's talk about the model itself in terms of, so now you're doing 100% acquisitions, you're bringing people into one brand, one ADV, all that kind of stuff. What is what does the model look like? Combination of cash and equity. Talk to us about what that looks like. Yeah, so typically it's a combination. Our our typical way of thinking about things is we will make an all cash offer with the ability for the seller to choose up to thirty percent of the value in the form of merit or equity. And you know, it's not it's not a seventy thirty deal. It's the ability to choose up to that. And so we put that decision back on them on what, what exactly they're looking for. And, you know, we used to say all the time, you know, that, that I, I didn't want to be someone's retirement plan, right? I didn't, I didn't want them to sell and, and you know, not want to work. Yep. Um, now we think about it a little bit differently. Our acquisition strategy is a talent acquisition strategy. Mm. And, you know, if, if there is strong, G2, G3, I'm all for cashing out that owner and, and providing the, the next generation the support and, and resources, you know, for them to continue to do great things. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. I, so there's two things that I, I really like in that. One is, and people have heard me say this on other episodes of the series, even when it is a 70-30 deal or an 80-20 deal or somewhere else, I always encourage my clients to look at those two components separately and the way you express it is even more aligned with that because I say to them, listen, you're really doing two deals here. One is that you're selling your firm for X amount of cash and you should, even if it is a forced, let's say 70, 30, 80, 20 deal, you should look at it in my mind that you're getting 100% of that in cash and then you're making an investment decision, right, into your 
right, buyer. And that investment decision should be separately due diligence and thought about. And like, would you make that investment? I mean, unless you unless you're happy with the cash portion you're getting and you look at the equities gravy, which is not usually the case, I mean, you're making an investment decision. Would you invest in Mariner, for for example, and how much would you want to you know invest in it? And so I love the fact that you divide those because it really supports that my, my argument that the client should be looking at it as two related transactions anyway, with two transactions that were the separate business decisions on them. And, and, and you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly why we structured the, the way we do is, is we want the wanted buy-in. Yeah. We don't want it to be a forced buy-in. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So let's talk about G2 because it's always interesting with, 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 with G2 and G3, especially in this industry where unfortunately the industry has done a poor job very poor job of attracting talent and developing talent, you know, at a lot of levels, which has always sort of blown my mind because it's such a great industry, right? For me as a lawyer, I can really see it. I mean, obviously I've spent so much time in this industry, but I look at it and there's a lot of parallels, right? Where we both provide very high level advice to quality clients, you know, that is in significant matters in their life and whatever. But you guys have a way better model than we do, right? You know, I mean, I mean, you know, every lawyer, with, I'm not complaining. I do very well. I'm fine. But the point is business model wise, Let's see, recurring revenue, paid quarterly, in advance, pulled automatically out of an account. I mean, pretty good business model, great clients to, to deal with, sophisticated and challenging work. Like, I mean, I can go on and on and on. It's been amazing to me, the, the inability of this industry to develop that G2 and G3 talent generally. And I, it's no surprise to me that that's a big factor if you have that talent. But talk about your development, because it's a different pitch to... G2 and G3 often than, than, than the founders, right? In terms of a deal and, and too often, and we have a deal with structuring around, we'll get it done now, especially if G2 and G3 have not been equitized or otherwise, you know, taken care of, we, we've got one now where the founder controls 40% of the book of the, of the revenue and is, is looking to end up with 85% of the, you know, equity wise would end up with 85% of the, uh, the purchase price, right? So talk to us a little bit about G2 and G3 generally and how you deal with that. And also maybe how you overcome some of those issues that may arise in the structuring of the, of the selling firm on how they've treated G2, G3. Yeah, so, you know, a lot of the way we think about it is the G2 and the G G3, giving them opportunities to grow. And, and, and growth does that. Growth of the overall organization does that. So, you know, whether we're bringing in clients as fast as we are organically, whether we're growing from the standpoint of locations and all of those things, I mean, there's opportunities for the next gen to participate in that growth, both, you know, personally, professionally, and financially. Uh, in and seeing the track record that we have of doing that. I think, I mean, you know, the, 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 the average age in the industry is, you know, mid fifties, whatever it is, the average age of, of advisors at Mariner is, is uh, 40. That's and amazing. so, I mean, when you, when you really 
take a step back and think about that and all the acquisitions we've done, you know, the, it's because of that next gen and attracting that next gen and, you know, surrounding them with the tools and resources, having a practice management team that trains and develops and then feeding them. Yeah. Yeah. And, th- and that, you know, that 15%, I mean, listen, for the folks that know the industry know that that at least 15% year over year growth that you've had is, is phenomenal in the industry. And obviously that solves a lot of issues because, you know, sometimes one of the things that G2 and G3 is often looking at is, well, I'm really in a stage of my career. I'm, I'm still hungry. I'm aggressive, whatever. Can I grow faster on my own? Right. And frankly, you know, compared to some firms, you know, if a firm's grown at 2.8%, they, maybe they very well can. But if you've grown at 15, 20, you know, whatever percent, it's a different analysis. So, you know, I always make a distinction between organic growth and deal-driven growth, and we focus on deal-driven growth, but but the 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 organic growth rates you have are definitely, I'm sure, a positive attractor for, especially for G2 and G3, because it creates much more opportunity for them, right? Yeah, we, we, we think it is definitely. And, you know, we have a, a, a stat that I don't have this in front of me, but, you know, for all the acquisitions that we've done from, you know, 2012, through 2020, we acquired somewhere in the neighborhood of 105, 110 advisors. Mm-hmm. Just those locations now, just those locations is is north of 300 advisors. So, you know, the, the, to be able to say, you know, we're making this acquisition, we're putting a, a stake in the ground. This is now our marital location. We're going to grow it organically, we're going to grow it by recruiting and we're, we're going to go find talent to bring in. And, you know, that again, you know, growth drives growth. Yeah. Love that. Love that. I mean, that's a, that's a big factor. So you said you brought in over a hundred. So how, how many deals, how many M&A deals has Marina done over the years? Roughly. Call it 50. We've okay. done, we've done 26 in the last 18 months. Wow. So it might actually be north, north of 50 now. Okay. So let's talk about that. So obviously you started relatively early in this industry doing deals, right? 2011, 2012, you know, it's a timing, you know, for, we have a lot of listeners that are in the space, but we have plenty of listeners that are out. So just for those listeners who know, and there was a time, I mean, just 10 or 15 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, there was almost, I mean, forget PE money. There was barely even lending money and capital in, in this space, right. right? It's amazing the evolution, right. right? So doing deals, going back 11, you know, 12 years ago, I mean, you said you self-funded those deals. I'm not surprised because, you know, that's, there weren't a lot of options, but you've certainly accelerated significantly. And I'm, I'm assuming that that ties into right when you raised a capital. So talk, let's talk about that capital raising decision and that decision, because we talked a little bit about that mindset of moving from your organic growth to just deciding to do deals, but now it's another decision. Okay. We're going to take in outside capital. We've been able to do a really good job, not only with organic growth, but also with deal-driven growth on our own. But now we're going to take in capital and we're going to really step step up the pace. So talk to us a little bit about that decision and then who you brought in and you know and 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 how that's how that's worked. It's obviously worked out. You've accelerated your deals, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the way it kind of happened is, you know, doing, you know, anywhere between two to four deals a year for two to three years, and then we take a break. Yeah. And we take a break and integrate and do all that stuff. But really we're taking a break to build our capital base yeah. back up again so that then we could do it over and over again. And, you know, the, the being an opportunist and understanding what was going on in, in our industry and in the marketplace 
in, in seeing and understanding the flow, I knew I needed help. To go and, and bring someone from the outside in that could help fuel that and, you know, do it from the perspective of, you know, we, we, we chose Leonard Green Partners out of LA. Sure. Uh, and, you know, it, it, and as you can imagine, we, we, we had a lot of opportunities for others, but we, cho- we chose them mainly from the fact is they, they predominantly back founder-led firms and, and let those founders do what they do. And, and that's been 100% of our experience was them. And so, you know, they, get, they gave us this, uh, they give us the support we need and the things that we needed in, you know, the capital piece of it, but, you know, raising public debt for the first time. I mean, I needed them for that. So those, those types of things has been very helpful for us. Great. So, all right, so you raise that capital and then talk about how you deployed that capital. I mean, obviously you have capital to buy, but doing that many deals, I'm sure you'll start to build out more team and things like that, right? I mean, when you, I mean, it's a big difference between doing two, three deals and integrate them for a year or two and then doing another two, three, and then doing as many deals as you've done, done in the last year and a half. Yeah, up until, you know, really June of 2021, our, our, our deal team was basically two people. And one of those two people was me. Right. And the, the, yeah, it would be the amount of conversations, you know, the work that needs to get done, all of those things you can imagine it's, and you know, but our, our deal team today is 15, 16 individuals. Yeah. And, you know, I'm still extremely active in the process. We don't do a deal until I've met the individuals and, 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 and you know, do the cultural aspect and the, the value prop and client experience component of it. But, you know, we, we will talk to more than a hundred firms and, you know, that's just, that's not a one person's job. So, you know, sure. building that out had to happen, but that's just kind of the, the, the front stage deal team. And, but then in compliance, HR, operations, technology, you know, there's specific deal related people in each one of those as well that, that, you know, that know how to rinse and repeat. Love that. So, you know, it's interesting to me, the evolution that, that, that you've had, and I, and I love to see it. I mean, it's really, you can, you can make an argument that Marinus is one of the best examples of a firm that has shown the evolution of the industry, right? Going from, you know, startup RIA to expanding services to, and, and you guys have really been a leader in that. You've been earlier stage than a lot of folks and who have caught up and figured out, oh, we should have yeah, maybe we should add tax, you know, maybe we should add, like, you know, and, and, and firms are doing it now. So, you you know, one of the things I've always been impressed by you, Marty, about in the early years that we've known each other and also I've followed Marin from the outside is that you've been early in a lot of these processes, whether it's starting to do M&A and all that kind of stuff. Um, now, though, there's many more competitors, right? And this may tie into a transition where I want to talk about the industry in general. So on the one hand, there are many more competitors. On the other hand, you don't have an issue with getting deal flow, right? So talk about, you know, the evolution of the industry, um, you know, and, you know, what you see in general about that. I mean, you and I were talking pre going on the air a little bit that, you know, we, we, we both agree that it's come a long way, but we're still very early in its maturation. So talk a little bit about what you see there generally for the industry and what you see for Mariner within that. I mean, you know, we, there were some articles over the years about, oh, there's going to be this consolidation into a few small firms and, you know, like everybody's got an opinion on it, but I'd love to, you know, and, and I didn't buy into a lot of that, but in any case, I, I'd love to hear what, what, you know, what you're seeing in terms of the industry in general and, and, and how that affects the future for Mara. Yeah. Well, I'll start it by saying the, the, the boutique firm, you know, 
couple hundred million dollars in our management. In my opinion, those are never going away. Yeah. And and there's there's a place for them. There's a need for them. And and I think that exists. But that will continue to exist. But if you so you know, there's a lot of people that says Mariner is a large firm. And I always stop them and say, you know, Mariner is a large RAA. Right. I mean, we have we have a you know. 1,025 advisors. We have 1,800 total employees. You compare that to Merrill, Morgan, Wells, UBS, who have 17, 15, 12,000 advisors. I mean, we're not a large firm. Right. But as I mentioned before, I truly believe this model, the fiduciary model, is far superior than any other model. And, and do believe there's going to be a handful of RIAs that could compete on an advisor count basis with the wirehouses. Mm-hmm. And it's a personal mission of mine to try to have Mariner be one of those. And I, and, you know, I get asked the question, well, why? And, you know, we, we, my personal purpose and therefore Mariner's is to positively impact the lives of many. Mm-hmm. I'll start with the client and then with associates and then communities. And the, really the best way to do that is to be able to, have advisors that can give our quality of advice to as many clients as possible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one thing to focus on, you know, getting the individual client one client at a time, but, you know, growing your advisor account, you know, makes that possible faster. So, so let me, let me ask a question on that. And I only ask this because I, I really know your commitment, right. To, the fiduciary model and to the culture you have and that kind of stuff. One of the things that I've often said about the wirehouses is that, first of all, I think in the scope of all the models out there, there's a place for the wirehouse model. I'm, I'm, I mean, you know, I mean, I am all for the fiduciary model. I'm all for independence, whatever. But I mean, the, the, the wirehouses are going to be there for a long, long time. Right and, and there are certain people who belong working there, you know, whatever. Right. And, and, and even more so, many of the reasons I mean, what I love in this industry is that we have so many positive reasons now for being people uh, having advisors being pulled toward independence, toward RIAs, but all the negative reasons that they're running from, right? The, you know, the bureaucracy and the compliance and the, you know, and I always say, you know, probably out of what everybody calls compliance, 10% of it is true compliance, meaning legal compliance. The rest of it is risk management, right? I understand that model. People get frustrated, you know. We, they tell us we can't do this. They tell us we can't do this. You know, my argument often for the warehouses is that, listen, at some size, they've got to almost, you know, rule down to the lowest common denominator, right? Because you're running all these people, you're running to have, having too many people, having too much discretion can run you into trouble, right? So it's, it's not unusual for bigger companies to have. So as you continue to grow with your level of commitment to service the clients, to the fiduciary model, to the culture you have at Mariner, how do you maintain that as you, you know, as you scale in the way that you want to? It's something that we think about on a day-to-day basis. I mean, even, even getting to, you know, north of a thousand advisors, you know, maintaining that is a full-time job. You know, I, I think about it from the perspective of, you know, culture is top down, policing it is bottom up. And so, you know, making sure that, that people know and understand they they not only have the right, they have the responsibility to to raise their hand when when something's not matching the culture that they know the organization and myself wants. You know, I also think about it from from the perspective of, you know, coming from the wirehouse side of the world, you know, we used to you know, position ourselves as the quarterback of the relationship. 
And then we would go find third-party you know, tax, third-party legal services, third-party investment, whatever it was, right? But, you know, I, I really believe that, you know, the, the, the trick or the secret sauce for us is all these components, it's integrated. So, you know, the, the culture of the tax team is the same culture as the wealth team. And each of the, the components, they don't have their own client base. Their client base is the advisor's client base. And so, you know, everyone's working for the same thing. And I mean, I, I think, I mean, I do think that's a secret sauce. Yeah. Love that. So Marty, before I ask you my final two questions, is there anything else, whether it's about what you're seeing in the industry or about Mariner and, and your model and, and your value proposition out to advisors that you want to share? Yeah, I think, you know, just from the, 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 the industry perspective, the pace of acquisitions may slow down a little bit because of what's going on in the market. But even if it does, I think that's short term. Yeah, and, you know, and I think that it, it reaccelerates again it, if it indeed does slow down. I mean, our, just looking at our deal flow and, you know, it's a small industry. So all the, all the CEOs know all the CEOs, you know, either nobody's deal flow is slowing down or, the, or no one's admitting it. Right. Um, <laughs> I'm not exactly. sure which it is yet, but, <laughs> but so, so we'll, we'll see how all that plays out. But I think. You know, the interesting component and, you know, that we all know how fragmented this industry is and, you know, 15,000 firms, they're not, we're not declining. The number of firms is still going up year after year, yep. even though all these acquisitions are happening. And so, I mean, I, I think that others are starting to understand what this space is about and the attractiveness of it. And, you know, I think that we're still extremely early. Yeah. And, you know, as you know, in a little quick pre-conversation we have, I totally agree. And, and we see it as well because we do a lot on the breakaway side as well, in addition to the deal side. So we see both sides of it. And of course, I mean, my firm doesn't, we handle a lot. We've done hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of breakaways. So we're just, but we're still just a microcosm, but in our own volume, but also in the industry statistics, which are more important. Um, yeah. I mean, from the point of view of, hey, there are more aggregators, integrators, buyers, whatever, that are, that are bigger and bigger, there's consolidation. But as, as far as the overall industry, there's actually not because it's exactly what you said. There are more firms every year, despite how many are being bought up because of the strong breakaway movement, which continues. So, right. yeah, I think we, we've got a, we got a lot of years to, to still have some fun. <laughs> yeah, we do. All right. So, it's Marty, a good thing we're we, so young. Exactly. Listen, you and I could talk for hours and hours about deals, but we won't. So we got to bring this to a close. So before I ask you my final question, if people want to find out more about Mariner, what's the best place for them to get more? MarinerWealth.com or JoinMariner.com. Perfect. So Marty, my final question on the podcast is about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom from oppression from all people in the world to why I've been an entrepreneur and I've had a boss in 30 something years. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? You know, I think for for me, I, I bring it back to what I mentioned my purpose statement once, and that's the positivity impact the lives of many. And I think freedom to be able to do that and to focus on that and and, you know, and see and see the ripple effect that, that that has. I mean, you can focus on one individual at a time, but then watching how that just branches out from there. I mean, that, that is, I mean, that's why I get up in the morning. Yeah, I got to tell you, I so align with that, Marty. It's, it's, it's a beautiful time in life when you get to the place where you're driving motivated. It could be more about service and impact than, you know, anything, anything personal. It just makes 
Everything's sweet. Yep. Good stuff. Marty Bicknell, thanks for being such a great guest on the DealQuest podcast and on this special series we're doing on the RIA integrators and aggregators. Thank you, Corey. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.